Hello Sega fans, it's the Sega guys, and if you love Sega, then you too can be a Sega guy. Welcome to the family, I'm Dan the Mega Driver, and here's the other head of the family, the Majima to my Kiryu, it's James the Sega Holic, how you doing buddy? <laughs> We're going to get some karaoke going in here. <laughs> Majima! Well mate, we are not alone. It's, uh, it's an absolute pleasure to bring back uh, one of our favourite little segments. We haven't done it on the video format before. This is My Favourite Sega, where we go to a member of the community. And here we have, on this episode, gamer, collector and friend of the show, Videopolis. Mate, absolute pleasure to have you on here. Long time no speak. Like, spoke to you so much on Twitter in text terms. Speaking to you on video, it's great to see your face, mate. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing very well. I'm doing very well, Dan. Um, like I say, kind of surreal, kind of freaky to be here. Uh, I'm pretty sure my kids are looking forward to me being on YouTube as opposed to me being in their face all the time. But um, but yeah, no, it's good to be here. <laughs> you got a kid saying, are you a YouTuber now? <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm world famous. World famous. <laughs> See, my uncle says to me, are you a YouTuber? I was like, well, yeah, daddy makes a couple of videos on YouTube. But why aren't we rich? Yeah, yeah, I wonder that. <laughs> Monetization curve, man, it's not steep enough. Not steep enough. By not, not hit those milestones yet. <laughs> get, get in there, mate. Get in there. Yeah. <laughs> Clawing our way up the mountain. So, mate, tell us a little bit about yourself. You know, from a gaming perspective, like, how did you get into gaming? What was your first system? Um. Well, I mean, we're of a similar age. Um. And we all come from the UK. So effectively, I think all of us grew up on the, the kind of 8-bit micros. Uh, I think I'm right in saying that, Dan, you had a Commodore 64. I did indeed. James, I think you were a specky boy. Am I right in saying that? Yeah, yep. exactly. Exactly. And uh, yeah, I, I went a, a different direction. Not my choice personally, but I, I think it worked out quite well. So we had um, a BBC Model B micro in the house, which was my brother's. And uh, that was the first place that I played games. Um, and I want to say that the first Sega game, or it was certainly published by Sega, was the version of Spy Hunter on a BBC Micro, <laughs> which is like a, a very special game. Um, especially that version. It holds a lot of, uh, of fond memories for me. And obviously other classics like Eddie Kid's Stump Challenge, um, that sort of thing. Uh, obviously, I was very young. I was around about six, seven-year-old mark. Um, and after the beep, after a few years, my brother bought himself a Commodore 64. So I had that level of experience as well towards the tail end of the 80s um, and had some real fun there. Um, there's a lot of standout games on the C64. Really big fan of stuff like Nebulous, um, the version of Nemesis as well, Gradius on that platform is really, really good. Um, and obviously Outrun as well, which we'll probably come back to, I'd imagine. That's a very special <laughs> game on Commodore 64 for a lot of different reasons. Um, but after the kind of 8-bit micros phased out, I mean, obviously, Dan, I think you went straight from your brother's Master System to a Mega Drive. That's right, that yeah. correct? Yeah. And, um, and James, you hit that 16-bit scene and you went Atari ST and then Amiga and then... He's done his homework, Yeah, <laughs> well, you know, this stuff is memorable. This stuff is memorable. It's like, um, you know, it's it's fundamental to our DNA in terms of being a gamer, the path that you followed. Mm -hmm. um, 
which is why uh, I'm so sorry to disappoint you, James. I'm going to have to mention the N-word, Nintendo. <laughs> I was a Nintendo kid. And, um, yeah, so I went from a C64 to a NES, which is, in this country, quite unusual. The NES mm-hmm. was not the kind of dominating format by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, I think it's probably fair to say that the Game Boy was a lot more popular, which followed on, you know, yep. a year, year and a half after um, I was first exposed to the NES. And the story was that my cousin, um, he got an NES. He got the Mutant Machine, which was the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles oh, package. Yeah. And uh, I played that game. I liked that game. But the the game that really turned me on to the NES and, and really wanted me... Uh, really made me want to get an NES was uh, Super Mario Brothers 2. Um, and the reason for that was the dynamics of it. You could go forwards, you could go backwards, you could go up, you could go down, you could explore, you could go in, you could go out. You know, there, there wasn't really anything of that level of complexity on the 8-bit micros, I feel. You know, maybe some of the later stuff, um, Adventures in Monster Land, but by that stage, I kind of moved away from that i was lucky enough to be given an s um i got a deluxe pack i got super mario brothers i got duck hunt and um i just stuck with it for you know two three years moved on from that to a snes um i do sound like an insufferable nintendo fanboy we are getting to a point boys (laughs) i assure you um but yeah i was that atypical nintendo fan and just followed them wherever they went um for good or real it's uh, uh, it's quite interesting because i i went from commodore 64 and then my uncle got a i got a nez and i remember he we, he was at my living at my nan's at the time and because my dad's younger brother and i remember playing it thinking this is pretty cool but it didn't it didn't blow my socks off but i was playing the original super mario brothers and yeah. i think at the time i was playing i got i got my c64 89 and i think by the time i played the nez i played Flimbo's Quest. So I mm. thought Super Mario Brothers is really cool, but visually this hasn't this isn't a massive step up. But the way that you talk about Super Mario Brothers 2 is is it's quite a good point because yeah, the scrolling goes in multiple directions. You go indoors and the world changes and you can pull up turnips and all sorts of weird and wonderful stuff, which yeah, I can imagine that was pretty pretty impressive when you came to that. Well, yeah, it's all, it's that third gen of NES games, I say, I suppose. Um, because it's it's not the original Super Mario Brothers, which is like a black label game, one of those yeah. launch games for the system back in 83 in Japan or the system when it finally launched in America or even when it launched over here in like 87, 88. It is after Metroid. It's after they've worked out how to make the games more complex, but also make the games more complex, more pretty, sound yeah. better. And... um Two was actually a really big thing. I remember the advert quite well as well at the time, um, which is everybody standing on the United States of America wearing coloured baseball caps, sweatshirts, and you zoomed out and it's the face of Mario. That was that got quite a bit of airtime in the UK. So again, um, I think that was a big push for them alongside the mutant machine. Um, anyway, I digress. Got SNES, loved it kept with it right up until you know the the final days which is why i've ended up with a reasonable amount of latter day unusual rareish snes games um 
got a virtual boy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's how did that one get out the gate, really? Um, but there we go. Uh, got a Game Boy, got an N64. And I guess that's where things kind of start to diverge because much as I love the N64, um, it's a product of hubris. It's Nintendo being too rigidly safe, wanting to control their own market. It's a cartridge machine, which is just like, why would you do this? I mean, CD has been around since the Mega CD, PC Engine CD. It's a known technology. You could go and do this. Although I think the reasoning behind it might have been that the aborted PlayStation and them potentially ceding publishing rights to Sony. I think that may have terrified them it, a little. I think, yeah, I think it was that and uh, the CDI. But the, the the Philips debacle as well. Oh, yeah. That yeah. that I think that left a uh, sour taste. It is Yamamochi, uh, the head of Nintendo at the time. He was really against uh, using CDs after after those two deals through for, for, for There's a video on it somewhere, but yeah, I remember um, he was a, he was he's a bit of a character. So it was it was basically him who said, right, we're not using CDs. We're going to carry on doing what we do and using cartridges. <laughs> and he absolutely had the power to do that um yeah. because he he ruled nintendo with an iron fist and i could imagine i mean the dog shit that came out of the cdi deal in terms of the games is just it, it is kind of tragic really to, to have all of that up until like zelda four links awakening and then you have these terrible side on top down russian animated live action hybrid games which don't control very well it's just like I bet, I bet he was really annoyed. It's, I think they'd be more annoyed now because they're more a company about controlling their assets. But yeah. <laughs> back then, I bet they were livid. Um, but besides the point, I got an N64. There were very many good things to like about it. It was a four-player machine out of the box, which was kind of the future. It was the way things were going. The cartridges, although they were expensive, kind of played well into certain genres in terms of stuff that was becoming new and becoming the standard like open worlders and fps games and that sort of thing but by christ the release schedule was absolutely <laughs> glacial Aye. and i got my n64 after the price dropped the first time round. oh yeah i want to say but then again i'm so old now i can't remember it could have been at launch i know i know i definitely got a snes at launch the n64 i can't remember not because it wasn't memorable. It's just that that time period of me playing Super Mario 64 and Pilot Wings feels like absolute years. And then maybe there's Turok and what else after that? And it's it's a very, very narrow field. And the thing, the straw that broke the camel's back was I had mates who had PlayStations. They had Gran Turismo. I thought to myself, Let's go and get a Gran Turismo game for N64. What I ended up with was GT64. And <laughs> at that point, I think to myself, there's got to be a better way of doing this. And there was. And it was called the Saturn. Um, so this would have been late 97. This would have been just after the release of Resident Evil, I want to say. I, I walked into my local electronics boutique and I bought a second-hand Saturn, not boxed. 
It's very much like Saturn Dave's story, actually. I wasn't <laughs> there see, actually. I... It was 50 quid. 50 quid. Wow. Jesus Christ. About two years, two-ish years after launch, something like that, power launch, they could not give them away. The games 400 were... quid down to 50 in two years. Well, you know. that, that's, that's, we're talking mid-97, yeah? That's, yes. I got yeah. mine Christmas 96 for 250 quid. McGrath, that came with three games. Right. Which seemed, that's a very fair price for a Saturn, I feel. Oh, I, I was over the moon. <laughs> don't, don't feel too bad about it. It never really read discs properly. Um, <laughs> it managed to um, get through the first year of its life before I was replacing it with something a bit nicer, a bit tidier, but equally cheapish. Um, and it was just another avenue. And it was like my eyes had been opened because there was so much goodness there. And although, uh, you know, I'd been exposed to Sega earlier, you know, I I had mates that had Mega Drives. Um, you know, my brother had a Mega Drive too. I'd known Sega. That was the Sega that I went after. And it just, like I say, everything splintered off from there. So I got my Saturn. Then I started exploring Atari. Then I got a PlayStation. Then I got a Dreamcast. Then I get da 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 da. It all it all fractures out from the Saturn, and it's just because I I managed to open my eyes long enough to realise that there was more to life than Nintendo. Yeah, and uh, thank God I did, because I tell you what, it'd be a pretty boring existence right now if I was only playing Nintendo. I mean, what's amazing there as well, mate, is that you know you said your mates all had PlayStations. You seen Gran Turismo. So I was expecting you to say that that's that's where you went next. You you went after that kind of PlayStation. So I mean, what what was it that that made you kind of look at the Saturn and not the PlayStation, even though your mates had shown you Gran Turismo? Okay, so you have to remember, and this this is very silly to say it now, but I was a Nintendo fanboy. Stony were our mortal enemy. <laughs> <laughs> for as scary and, and old wounds run deep. I mean, I still. Oh, they do. I, I have a massive. You're on the right podcast, mate. <laughs> well, I just have a feeling of distrust about them, and I tell you what, the the reason why modern Sony doesn't really appeal at the moment is because they are refining and shaping their one idea of a game down to the same homogenous template, and just putting it out there at seventy quid a pop, and yep. waiting for the money to roll back in. I mean, someone fundamentally tell me the difference between, oh, I don't know, got a war Ragnarok. How is that different from Ghost of, Ghost of Tsushima? Tsushima is just slightly more open in terms of landscape. They're still third person. They're still open worlders to a certain degree. There's a bit more level design with Ragnarok, and it's a bit more focused. But it's a third person action adventure with cinematic elements. They used to make... So many different genres, so many exciting games. And I, I just think they're playing it as safe as Nintendo were at their worst point, you know. Um, and it, it just doesn't excite me anymore. I have a PlayStation 5. It kind of hasn't been on for months. I feel like Returnal is probably the best game they've made for it, just because it is fundamentally different and unusual and shifts and looks great. And Housemark is a great studio anyway. Yeah, but it, it all feels a bit reductive, um, and it does kind of go back to the fact that look, I 
I'm no idiot. I know Nintendo absolutely screwed Sony on it. They, they, you know, their lawyers were obviously having a day off when it came to the contracts because when it came to the Super CD format, Sony were going to walk away with the lion's share in terms of royalties. In terms of the publishing, it was all going to be with them. And obviously it got high up, high enough off the chain where someone at Nintendo thought, well, what the bloody hell are we doing this? We're the ones who have made our mark in the games industry. Why are we handing it over to this media company? They make electronics. What are we doing this for? Um, and unfortunately, they felt, yeah, all right, we won't go Japanese. Let's go Dutch instead. But the, the point still stands. Um, and thereafter, Sony were out for Nintendo's blood. I mean, Sony were scary for Sega fans, but I kind of... I don't know whether you thought that Sony was that much of a threat to begin with prior to 299. And even then, it was a case of, well, Sega knows what they're doing. That's Aye. that's the feeling that I get. This is really, really interesting, actually, because we're getting the perspective of someone who also having that Nintendo upbringing. So you're, you're kind of seeing the, the pre-PlayStation dealings. So you've got that kind of basis to work on where us being totally siloed on Sega at the time, we're like... As you said, the two ninety nine, we're seeing them coming in. You're seeing footage of the games on Games Master, Dominic Diamond, kind of Lord and you know Ridge Racer and things like that. But we're still listening to like Violet Berlin and Andy Gray going, you know, Sony, the tech company, their first chance in the video games industry. Will they succeed? So I think what you said there was actually quite interesting. The fact that you're you're looking at Sony from probably a vantage point of before even we did. You know, they were they were. It felt like they were something to be concerned about because they were big. They were big across the 90s, not necessarily in games, but they were still publishing on the SNES to limited effect uh, and other formats as well. But it did feel like Nintendo had poked the brown bear, you know, and Sony was going to come after them. Come hell or high water, Sony were going to beat Nintendo. And as I say, for a Nintendo fan, that was kind of terrifying. Uh, a section of our childhood was possibly going to be crushed under the boot of some, you know, mass conglomerate. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> fortunately, we, we know better now. And, um, yeah, Nintendo seems to be doing A-OK. And now the tables have turned. It's not quite so fun anymore for perhaps certain uh, aspects of the community, shall we say. Suppose um, I suppose what Sony did was change what Nintendo was, where Nintendo was, you know, the SNES and then the N64 and even the GameCube to an extent mm. were cutting edge until Sony just demonstrated that they couldn't compete in that market. And now we're left with this more gimmicky version of Nintendo, which will introduce a bit of hardware that has a gimmick. Oh, look, it has a a screen or a motion controller or it's a, it's a, a hybrid console and then it mm. will churn out the same obviously high quality games i mean mario odyssey breath of the wild tears of the kingdom the, the games on there are spectacular metroid dread out, out, an outstanding mm. game but you know it all feels quite safe from a yeah. software perspective they they do they do feel as if they've kind of painted themselves into a corner and let's be honest the snes was cutting edge man and the gamecube was heavy hitting i mean for a little purple box that had some serious hardware in it and yeah. uh was almost the precursor to what the 360 had going on effectively which is you know ibm power pc three cores i think it has three cores 
or could have two in the game kit. Either way, it was, again, forging that path of technology meets game, this is art. Yeah. Although Nintendo's got some smart engineers still, they're not in about the bleeding edge at all, which I think, again, is something that's, you're right, it's been lost, um, and they're never going to get it back. But the Switch is a nice uh, concession, shall we say. Yeah. A consolation prize, because, <laughs> like I say, Nintendo is safe, I feel, at least for the time being. And, um, and yeah, like I say... Uh, I was an ex-Nintendo fanboy. I've now kind of pursued every hardware format that I possibly can within reason. I'm not about to go out and get a Neo Geo. My <laughs> Mega CD is in the shop, but I generally try and cover all angles. And I think my problem is that my eyes are bigger than my stomach, but I still love it all. And I will endeavor to play it as much as I can. And since the pandemic, um, it's now all out around me, usable, you know, a lot of this stuff was in the attic. Um, I work in the AV industry. As a result, I took that expertise and I turned it into a system so I can put my consoles everywhere. They go through like an OSSC and I can put them on my CRT. I can put them on my telly in my lounge. I can, yeah, I just uh, I just love it all. I just love video games because it's it's history in the making. It's happening in front of us right now. I was born right at the very start of it, 1978, when Ingersoll was releasing the Atari VCS into this country. And I'm going to be playing until the day I die or um, until my wife tells me to get off the bloody telly. So uh, <laughs> I can totally relate, mate. I mean, um, yeah, obviously, Sega, Sega is a high. And, you know, we've, we've talked about a bit about Nintendo and we've gone a bit all over the place. But as I say, PC Engine is something that I love. I think we all started out with systems that weren't Sega. You know, we all started out with those 8-bit micros and it's, it's you know, all games, love them all. But um, going back to Sega then, so uh, you got a, you got a Saturn for racing games. What was the first racing game you got? Oh, well, okay. Um, so Sega Rally was the first racing game that I got, but the racing game that I bought my Saturn for was Outrun. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, is that via yeah, the so Power Sega Ages collection, or did you import that the is. Japanese version? So, you know, it's right here. So, no, it's the Power one, unfortunately. So, only 30 frames a second. But, <laughs> um, arcade Perfect, though. Arcade Perfect, which is, um, again, I just, and I'll probably circle back to this when we do without wanting to give the game away, my favourite console. But um, one of the primary reasons why I got a Saturn, you know, there are three. There are three games that kind of caused me to get a Saturn above anything else. Um, and I think it's I think it's a timeless console. I, I think, you know, you were hitting that nail on the head with Saturn, Dave, and, and Pat, is that it's there's so many layers to it, and we're only discovering now the the real power behind it it was very ahead of the curve um it was you know multi-processor in a in an industry which was just trying to get its head around 3d in the first place all of the leading systems were single processor the um you know the consoles that tried to be multi-processor either half-assed it like the jag or you know, were sitting in the arcade. 
So it wasn't a common thing. People didn't have, in terms of developers, did not have common experience of it. And and now it's the industry standard. We've got consoles with like eight cores, you know, and their system on chips, and they include the GPU as well. So in a lot of ways, it's um, it was very forward thinking. And uh, like I say, it just it, it provided a, a window to another world in terms of games. So um, I'm absolutely glad that I got my sound. I'm glad that I got it when I did, because I feel like a lot of people missed out. They missed out on the opportunity. And although I wasn't there in the early days, I feel like I caught enough of the flavor of it, mm. that tail end, that one of that phrase, almost peak uh, in terms of the PAL market because you have the games coming out which didn't receive mass attention but got critical attention like Pan's Dragoon Saga, Burning Rangers, you know, our port, our favourite port, Resident Evil, which yeah. I still think looks great, plays great, is is perhaps the definitive maybe in a lot of ways. I'd agree with so, that. Certainly a lot better than the director's cut, that's for sure. <laughs> I've got the crappy music. So when did you start going backwards then? So you talked about getting a Dreamcast, but when did you start? So now you've obviously you've got the Mega Drive, Mega CD, Master System. Were they recent or did you start going back soon after you got the Saturn? So I want to say the history is got my Saturn. This is late 97. And then I'm poking around in places like cash converters and that sort of thing. And I would have got my Atari VCS, my light sixer, as it were. Um, around about the same sort of time for 20 quid um, with boxed games, paddles, joysticks, pretty much everything. You, again, they could not give them away. Um, and I did go off on a little bit of a, a kind of Atari tangent, as it were. There's that word again, tangent. Um, and I think it was because the Saturn was a modern system. It wasn't necessarily a retro uh, system. Yeah. So all the time I'm looking back, at Atari, I'm also looking forward with the N64 and the Saturn. Um, and I got a VCS, I got um, an Atari 800 XL, which is the 8-bit micro. Those are really good machines. Uh, I got an ST, Jim Bob, and uh, had many good hours on Power Drift on that. Uh, the version of OutRun, not so good, but there we go. Oh. <laughs> yeah, It's not. I, I see I got OutRun and that bloody big I've mentioned it all year power before pack. that yeah, the power yeah. pack guy, and it was like all the discs just in really bland white labels with a name printed in the same font. It was a like predator was in there, afterburner, hang on, outrun. It was just I think Bomb Jack was in there as well. I actually liked Bomb Jack. I had a lot of fun with Bomb Jack. I liked that wee game, but I it wasn't it wasn't a great version of Outrun at all. Uh it's it, Outrun is all about frame rate and that speed <laughs> that sensation of speed and that did not have it that was like Ooh. five or six frames a second <laughs> and when it, i mean you don't expect for a 16-bit format the loading screens to look better than the actual game and in uh, that instance it absolutely was and it's, it's a shame because i think i think the st was really quite a good format i mean yeah probably jumped the gun a bit and the amiga was a much more powerful machine but in terms of an accessible desktop, you know, really quite some smart ideas going on there. Um, after the ST, I want to say I got a 7800. Um, and then I was receiving all manner of bullshit through from eBay. I think I got a non-working Commodore uh, Plus 4 at some stage. I got uh, I got a Mega Drive. 
I did get a Mega Drive. I got um PAL uh, Mark One unit, white reset button. Not the one I've got now, but probably the one that's up there somewhere. And um, continued to rob my little brother of his games. Um, <laughs> I got an Intellivision, which never really worked, and I couldn't work out why it was broken. Tried to fix that. Um, and again, like I say, it just kind of spiraled out. Um, and I did eventually get a PlayStation. This this would have been, and I got a PS One specifically, so the little tiny, oh, so I could yep. hide it in a drawer somewhere. Um, and I got that just probably prior to me getting a Dreamcast, or just the year before. Yeah. So, and again, the Dreamcast. I was a latecomer on that one, I think. And it, it was more a case of economics than anything else. You know, I just did not have the spare cash to be dropping, certainly at that point, serious dough on, on launch machines. You know, I was I was struggling to pay the rent, that sort of thing. But when I could, I did. And uh, I made damn sure to get myself, you know, a reasonable selection of games. And, and the second-hand market back then was far richer than it is now. I mean... Uh. You know, and and priced accordingly as well. I think the day that I got my Dreamcast out of Argos, um, and this would have been the Choo Choo Rocket pack in for free, 150 quid. Mm. So this puts it in the summer of, I want to say 2001, but that doesn't seem right. Um, but I went immediately to the independent shop near my work in Tunbridge Wells, got myself a second-hand copy of Crazy Taxi for like 20 quid. Got myself a second-hand copy of Soul Calibur for 15 quid. I mean, it, it was just astonishing. Um, right. And it, these were quick turnarounds as well, you know? It's like people weren't holding on to games for years and years and years and then selling them. It was like a couple of weeks later, I'm done with that. It's down the shop. And there I am, right at the shelves, waiting for them to <laughs> fill them up and just going, right, I love that, I love that, and I love that. It, um, must, be, it must be kind of quite strange for it. People who, you know, don't remember or didn't, you know, have that experience of what because what you're saying there, like now you see the way prices have went with with games. It's it's just mad. Nobody could have foreseen the way the retro markets went. But like, mm. obviously, whenever I, I've spoke to Dan as well, like, it was obviously sent me that Mega Drive up as a gift, kind of a couple of years ago. But like, I did pick one up again. I kind of did the same as you. Like, had my Saturn. So right, I'm going to go back the way. I'm going to pick up a, a cheap Mega Drive and it was Game Zone and Partick. And mm. like they were throwing them at you for pennies. Yeah. You know, it was like, like a Mega Drive was like 15, 20 quid, a copy of Sonic cartridge only three, four quid. It yeah. was buttons. You know, the, it's just daft. Well, I mean, but like you say, who was to say that things were ever going to go this way? Yeah. And that it was going to you know, collecting as a whole was going to be seen as an independent hobby yeah. and uh, a speculative hobby at that for, for certain people. Uh, there are two instances where I think, you know, which are atypical of that early 21st century pricing. I managed to get not one, but two absolutely immaculate limited edition Castlevania Symphony of the Nights out of Blockbuster, 20 quid each. And I, one of them sat on my shelf, and at the time, I literally sold it, same money, to a guy I knew off the edge forum. Because it was all a case of like, well, I played this game, I really like this game, do you want this game? 
have this game. <laughs> it's oh. not it's not gonna happen anymore with with games like this. It might not even happen with games because where is physical going? It's disappearing yeah. off the shelves. The supermarkets are getting out of it. And if they can't afford to do it, what makes you think that the specialists can afford to do it in any meaningful sense well, for new games? If you go into if you go into game these days, it's mostly Funko Pops and board games and t shirts. Right. It's toy, isn't it, really? Let's be yeah. honest. It's not game, it's toy. And it's <sighs> Lego. Uh, yeah. It's it's Symphia Night is a is a sore point for me because I um I bought the Saturn version for forty quid on you know with the computer exchange I'm not going to call them sex computer exchange in Rathbone Street in London just got it in so it was like near launch got that for forty quid played it traded it towards the Dreamcast for twenty quid and I was just like ah oh, I wish I hadn't sold that now um but then found the PlayStation version special edition in computer exchange in Watford for fourteen quid. Um, yeah. Can't say no. Can't. Uh, I mean, up, my mate was saying, "Why have you picked up a crappy old Castlevania game?" I was like, "This game is a classic," and I had that for about five, five or six years until I got my Xbox three hundred and sixty, and Symphony of Night came onto Xbox, mm. and um, I was pretty strapped for cash at the time. And I was like, "Well, I got Symphony of Night on there. It was like twelve hundred. It was like the first twelve hundred point game or something like that, wasn't it? It was like, but I was just like, well." I don't need the PlayStation version anymore. You know, if all these games, Street Fighter 2 is now on Xbox Live, Castlevania is on Xbox Live, Sonic 2 and Sonic yeah. 1 are on Xbox Live. Do you know what? I'm not going to need any of these games anymore. So I'm just going to sell Symphony of Night. And I was like, someone wants to pay 50 quid for it. Well, there you go. Mm -hmm. <laughs> these prices are going to come tumbling down in a few years. Yeah. Yeah. It's like as well, I mean, the fact that whenever I sold up all my kind of Japanese and PAL Saturn and Dreamcast stuff and it's like Panzer Dragoon Saga I got 180 quid for that on eBay and that was back in like 2008 and I'm thinking oh I've done well here man 180 quid I paid 37.99 for that what did I do with that money I bought a tailor made burner three wood you idiot I don't need these old games I've got a new golf club you know what I mean so it's like but I mean I, I remember like, again I picked up like a the grey Japanese satin box, lovely gold box, the the white satin and the not in the the kind of I call it the photocopy looking box. It's the the kind of it looks oh, like a kind of weird it's like it's white brown. white aye, it's white with red, whereas there was another version that came out and it was a glossy white box with a red stripe down it. Um oh. and it was it was that one I got. And again, I was getting these, these were coming via EMS shipping, right? Like you're talking about fifty quid. 50, 60 quid. They were dirt cheap. Like yeah. X-Men versus Street Fighter with the cartridge, 25 quid shipped. It's it was like, it. they were just throwing things at you. And then it's like, no one could have foreseen it. Madness. No. It's, no. it's um, And it's, yeah, I, I tell you what, it, I'm kind of glad that I, I've been privileged and been in the position or I've just fought damn hard where I've taken games back but I haven't sold anything. It's either been up in the attic or it's gone into storage or something along those lines. Um, and I'll tell you what it was. I sold the BBC Micro, my first computer, to my cousin um, to fund the purchase of the C64 from my older brother because um, he was a chiseling bastard and still is. 
And <laughs> it, it's something that I regret to this very day. I wish I'd held on to it. We had, you know, not loads of games for it, but all of them I just have huge fond memories of, you know, Castle Ravenskull in the big Acorn Soft black box, you know, Starship Command, probably one of my favourite shooters of all time. It's gone. It's all gone. And uh, there was a point where I was going to sell my N64 to um, fund the purchase of my SNES, but I couldn't let it go. I just could not let it go. It was in the paper, being advertised. Someone was going to come and pick it up and buy it. And I just, I said to mum, can't do it. Can't let it go. And so I saved my ass off and worked and grafted and got the money that way. And it's just something that stuck with me. I've never sold anything. Um, I don't think I would sell anything now. I think I'm in far too deep. I think the wish the wife wishes I would sell something. Um, and maybe something will give eventually. But at the moment, the ship is stable and nothing is going nowhere. It's stuff coming in, not going out. And it's it's not for the want of I tell you what, I'd love an ODE. I'd love to get on board with Satiator. Um, but I tell you what, I'm too busy spending my money on getting games. And I, I know that's not sensible, James. It is the most <laughs> idiotic thing in the world. It is a fool's errand. But I cannot help myself. And I think it is the historian in me. It's it's wanting to hold that box. It's wanting to plug that cartridge in. And there is a... Do you watch the Tetris at all? Have you seen that show? No, okay, we, you should. It's proper old man fodder, so you love it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, there is a there is a line in the final episode where it, they basically explain that the reason why they do metal detecting and all of this stuff is because it's time travel. Well, that's what games collecting is. It's time travel. I, I can tell you the number of books I've read, which are great, absolutely. But I cannot remember where I was when I was reading them, how I was feeling at the time, who I was with. If I pick up a game, I know exactly where I was when I first played that. I know exactly who I played it with. I know when I first saw it. I know when I first read about it. I probably know what score it got in Edge if it ever got reviewed. It's a form of time travel. It is nostalgia in a cardboard box. No, I, I completely agree. I mean, you talk about idiots collecting. I mean, yeah. <laughs> But but I I I said to myself I, mean, I said to myself I'm not going to buy, buy buy anything this year I'm going to really tone it down. But then uh, how many games deep are you now, Dan? I, I don't know. I've lost count. But I had four delivered this morning at the time of recording the ones that I put on Twitter, and three of those two of those were saying three of those were from uh, Andy Mackey um, oh, on yeah. Twitter. I um, just bought. He's just bought a Fenrir. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, I've got a Fenrir, and I I, I love, love it to bits, and I think it's essential not only just to play the games that you can't play or can't afford, but also the, the amount of ROM hacks and translations and stuff. But I still enjoy buying games. And the example I was going to give is one of the games that I bought that I got delivered today was Tama, Tama, however you pronounce it, the the ball pin rolling game that was a launch game on the Saturn. And oh, for me, it's like, I, I could play that on the Fenrir. But I thought, do you know what? It's nice to have that in Virtual Fire because they are... The launch that games the launch. Yeah. You know, for the system and it's 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 very much you know 
it's great being able to put one in the thin reel, but I, I, I enjoy opening it up and plonking it in the tray and it is, it, it's taken back in time. Uh, see, uh, I'm, 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 I think I must be quite fortunate because, like, you're talking about, like, obviously, you can look at a game or hold it and remember where you were and things like that, but it's likewise, I can still, like, I can I play Virtua Fighter. I've got Virtua Fighter on on this thanks to Retro Prime. He sent me that for helping him out with his Fenrir. Uh, and I've got that those kind of wee games in my wee cabinet that kind of just sit there. They kind of use them, but they're kind of because they've got meaning to me. Mm-hmm. But it's like I could still like, load Sega Touring Car from Fenrir. And I remember when I walked into CA Games with Sam, I remember it was Charlie's shop before he renovated it, before he expanded it. The CRT was up in the top right-hand corner above the cash desk. Charlie had a grey shirt and blue jeans on. I can remember the Ginger Ninja was working that day. We walked in and Sam picked up Sky Target and I went, don't buy it because it's shite. It's like, <laughs> you can still remember all these kind of wee nuances as well. So, you know, it's like... Uh, I, I, don't, it's, I don't disagree. I don't disagree at all. And um, I, I don't know. It's it's just me or my. The thing is, the memories will always be there, right. and the game sure. is the most sure, important man. thing. It's all in there, and and the the game is absolutely the most the most important thing of all. So, even though I have the box without the game, it's meaningless. So if I can't play the game, it's meaningless. Which is why, like I say, a couple of years back, I made the change. I may have had all of these games dotted about the place, but I had no way of playing them in any easy fashion. Right. And now that's kind of upended, and I can, and there's accessibility there. So, yeah. Um, but you're right. I should be more, more open to, I should get that. You should, you I should, should absolutely <laughs> sort it. It would what? certainly do my bank balance a lot of good. I, it's feel. No, I think even for that, it's like what Dan said there about the fan translations. I think that, that, Probably mm. is is the main benefit for for that like a collector like yourself. It's because like the Stellar Assault and Bulk Slash um, fan mods, they, they didn't just do the stuff on screen. They hired a crew and a mm. team to do a, an audio dub. So yeah. like Luna Two as well. I want to that's say that's right. Luna uh, Two yeah. is done as well. Yeah, um, and it's just obviously you've got um, Shining Force Three, Scenario Two and Three. Police knots, all these kind of things are just a so many of them. Deer at the moment. Yep, yeah, it's just, and I think that in itself, as much as it is great to maybe have the physical copies of those games, the Japanese versions, mm-hmm. to actually be able to, to actually experience. I mean, Sega Gaga on Dreamcast, please, man. I'm trying to play it with Google Camera, and <laughs> it's just, it's just not happening, man. It's just, it's brutal. I just want to play that game so badly, and I'm hoping somebody translates it. I think that will probably push me over the edge, and I'm surprised that Grandia hasn't done already because the PlayStation version is like, I do love it, but I know it's not the definitive version, and I'd love to play the Saturn version in English. Um, it'll happen. It'll happen. It'll happen when it happens, James. Maybe after my <laughs> outrun stand up, we'll, we'll see. We'll see. We'll see. But I think maybe we need to maybe move on now to your favourite Sega. So, as always. We'll go through your favourite music, favourite game and favourite console. So please tell us and our audience, what is your favourite piece of Sega music? Um, so that is uh, Yozo Koshiro's Fighting in the Street from Streets of Rage. Let's play that music know. right now.
was the absolutely fantastic fighting in the street from Streets of Rage 1, courtesy of Yuzu Shiro. Why is that song so important to you, mate? Um, so again, we're of a similar age, so we won't remember it massively clearly, but we obviously lived through the, the second summer of love, the, the rave scene of the late 80s, early 90s, where dance culture was like everywhere. Um, you know, uh, and dance music was crossing over into all the musical genres throughout the charts. You know, you had acts like Soul to Soul, who were working on the soul side of things, Neo Soul. You had bands like the Prodigy and Orbital, who were pushing the rave scene into the charts. Um, you know, industrial coming up through Nine Inch Nails, uh, pop, Depeche Mode, effectively, Erasure, stuff like that. Dance was everywhere. Dance was even on, you know, Saturday morning TV. I, I defy anybody to say that the, the theme tune to Get Fresh wasn't an absolute banger. And it was. It was. Mick Jones, by the way, of The Clash did that. Um, so, yeah, there is a certain sound to that particular time and place. And that tune specifically, although the entire soundtrack is absolutely fantastic, um, harks back to that time and it was the first bit of game music where I thought to myself wow that actually sounds like real music that sounds like that could be you know blasting out of someone's stereo this wasn't 45 second loop of you know the Mario tune everybody knows the goddamn Mario tune right and it is literally 45 seconds repeat 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 this had more complexity to it the sounds in it sounded real intentionally because Kashiro was modeling his drum sounds after the TR-707 and the 808, you know, rolling drum machines. Um, he was trying to ape a sound and a time and a place. And that was revolutionary. You know, I don't know many musicians now who get credited in the intros to games. He was. Um, Revenge of Shinobi, his name is there. I was going to say. Know, alongside yeah. Sega. Streets of Rage, Streets of Rage 2. Streets of Rage 3, I think, was developed by Ancient. So, you know, am I am I right in saying that? Um, but didn't, weren't they all technically developed by Ancient? It was his sister's studio, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, was... so that, that started in 1990, and I know they did the 8-bit versions of Sonic, and he obviously yep. did the music. Right. Very yep. He gets, gets the credit in those as well. But I don't know whether full, uh, Ancient gets full credit on the original game. Regardless, he 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 had a prolific career, and obviously music in his in his blood. He started out on you know uh, with Falcom, you know the East games. Um, he was using uh, well, funnily enough, those games were on the PC eighty eight oh one, so the NEC PC standard computing standard in Japan, um, and it's a tool that he kind of used all the way through to the extent where he created his own uh, music programming language based off of NEC Basic, which is um, MML, Music Macro Language, I want to say. He was using that to sequence the music for Mega Drive games um, all the way up until Streets of Rage 3, where he goes even further, and he creates a tool which effectively artificially generates music, you know? randomly which is just crazy stuff um he he is a genius an absolute musical genius and i think that shines through on the soundtrack 
And again, that tune specifically, it could have been Moon Beach. I mean, Moon Beach is very good, but <laughs> Fighting in the Street is its that tune where you have the intro, which sounds like Enigma's Sadness, and then you have the character select screen, which is almost like a coda to that intro tune, that slow kind of sloping tune. And then Fighting in the Street hits, and it's just like dun-dun-dun-dun. Bass sounded through, and then you get that drum loop, and then it's up. It's up all the way, high energy. Astonishing. Astonishing. Nothing else sounded like it then. Nothing else really sounds like it now. I mean, you don't have people creating something that is recognized 30 years later in terms of video game music like this. I mean... The album is on Apple Music. The album for Streets of Rage 2 is on Apple Music. The album for Streets of Rage 3 is on Apple Music. People respect what he did with these scores, and all he was using was the Yamaha sound chip in, in, your, uh, in your Mega Drive, and uh, I think he was using the CPU to basically keep the beat, wasn't he? he was using the, uh, wasn't he using the Master System CPU? He was using uh, the Zylog Z80, wasn't he? To, but yeah, yeah um, I think... It comes back to the Mega Drive kind of being the last true chip tune machine, isn't it? Because mm. once you got to the SNES, that's when you started getting all your sampled sounds. Yeah. So it it kind of is the pinnacle of that sort of sound. And yeah, I'm, I'm more of a Moon Beach sort of guy, but that soundtrack uh-huh. is absolutely phenomenal. I mean, that mm. fighting in the street has so many layers. You've got the you've nice. got the slow start of you boom boom boom, and it's do 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 do. Then you've got kind of the next phase, which is the um. Then you've got kind of the bridge and then it kind of slows down again, doesn't it? And it's it's, it's got it's like a journey, it's it's almost perfect in the way that it kind of it's your journey through that level, isn't it? it it's it's absolutely phenomenal. It works on so many levels. I, I swear to god, it's it's the missing in a city tune in between, like <laughs> you know, uh after Big Fun. That's when Fighting in the Street should have been released by them, you know. <laughs> and again, as I say, it's so evocative of the sound. There was so much going on within the field. But that was the first instance where I thought, that sounds real. That where sounds you, great. Where did you hear that one first then? Was that after you got your Mega Drive or was that like kind of out of friends or anyone's? So, um, yeah. Uh, so a mate of mine, Simon Sanford, he had a Mega Drive. Um, and this would have been prior to me getting a snap in about 91, I want to say. And he had a reasonable selection of games. You know, he had EA Hockey, he had Desert Strike, he had Road Rash. He had a kind of classic triumvirate of EA games. Um, had Streets of Rage, had Kid Chameleon, which I've got a lot of time for as well. Um, and he lived down the bottom of my estate. Funnily enough, the estate that I live on now. Um, so that would have been the first place that I heard it and I played it. Um, certainly played that game for a long, long time. Uh, and when I got... I made especially sure to seek it out, but I actually kind of went a different route. I got a Mega CD and I got Arcade Classics because I knew I'd have the Red Book Audio on it. So, yeah, uh, I got it that way. Although, sadly... With the Mega CD out of action, I am uh, using my Mega Game 6, which is a hell of a compilation. Volume 1 or Volume... That's the way... There's three there's three versions of Mega Game 6. I think it's an all three. There's the two... There's the red one, 
Um, that's you said what me. I sent you. Actually, aye, aye. I had Waddle Cop Streets at Age. I think Shinobi was in one, was it not? The, Revenge of the Golden Axe, Super Hang On, and Collins. This one is. I'm sure it's the one you sent me, mate. The difference with the one that I sent you had Sonic on. Ah, uh, right. Yep. Yep. But yeah, they were they were the Mega Sixes, which I think which I think were filling up warehouses up in Sega of America. But we digress. Oh, <laughs> 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 uh, but what what a choice for a tune, mate! Absolutely, absolutely fantastic. So sensational. Your favourite game then? Uh, I think there's been a few hints of it through the conversations <laughs> we've had, especially in the first part of the show. But if you'd like to tell our viewers and our listeners what that game is, um, probably the most atypical Sega game there is, uh, and that's Outrun. Um, and as I said initially, first time I played it, it was the Commodore 64 version. Far removed, far removed from the. Oh, a lot of time for that version. I've got a lot of time for that version. Yeah, there's there's kind of, and you probably know this, Dan, the sad story behind it, Martin Webb developing it as a kid and, and the kind of relationship trouble. Yeah, with, yeah. That. Um, but yeah, a sensational game, really, considering the humble hardware. Um, and they were being pretty honest about the way it looked on the back of the box as well. So yeah, even had that amazing Atari ST version we were mentioning earlier on, James, where it looks so great in the stills. Um, but the C64 version also included uh, an audio tape of the arcade soundtrack, which put the ball in a few yeah. plays. Yeah. Oh, that's quality. Yeah. That's US Gold. An extra. Flexing their muscles on that one. Um, Didn't he flex them off in me, to be fair, let's be honest. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they, they, they had their moments. Didn't, didn't happen <laughs> often, but yeah, this was one of those times where the license was well chosen, well used, and um, yeah, the, the audio tape was just kind of like cherry on the cake, really. Spent many hours playing that game, many hours. Um, and as I say, it's far removed from the arcade, but it kind of, it, it almost set an expectation of freedom you have a car you have the road you drive you just go that's it um but the first time that i played the arcade proper was on a school trip and this would have been my last year of primary school and the year prior we'd gone to a butlins at bogner and it was brilliant you know bogner regis in the summer in the sun the beach you know we were having a great time the following year we went to uh in Wales, which was not quite as sunny, not quite as pleasant, far from it. This was this was a boot camp um, with red coats. <laughs> it was extremely run down. The most entertainment you would get was watching the boomerang roller coaster that was off about five miles away on the coast, run backwards and forwards as they tested it in the constant rain. There was one right spot to the entire poxy week and that was in their cafeteria they had one arcade machine and that arcade machine was an outrun stand-up cab it was 50p a play and when i saw it i could not believe what i was seeing because i knew the arcade was the machine was there it did exist but I had no experience with the arcade. You know, there weren't arcades in my hometown. I don't think I'd even seen an arcade machine until that point. I was playing games at home. 
So to see this thing in its attract sequence, moving at the rate it did with the music blaring and the buttons flashing, it was it was love at first sight. It was love at first sight. And any and all money that I had for that trip went in that machine. And <laughs> I treasure every moment of it. I, I you know, I'm not going to lie. I was like, what, 10, 11? It was, it's not exactly a low cab for a child, to be honest. Yeah, but I managed right. to look over the wheel and, you know, it took a bit of effort to actually move my foot from one pedal to the other in terms of the accelerator and the brake. It's not as if you could, like, oh, adult foot, just rest it there a little bit and then move it back again. But I was overwhelmed by the sensation of speed. I'd not seen anything like it. I didn't think it was possible. I'd come from 8 bit micros where, the racing games were flashing line horizon lines a bit and outrun the C64 version was kind of the first one to, to really push the objects flying towards you. But obviously they did it with sprites and you could see how they did it. The arcade machine was just a revelation, just, you know, um, and it's my favorite Sega arcade game of all time. I think the balance of it is beautiful. I think, the music that you have within it is iconic, you know, um, magical sound shower being my personal preference. Um, I think it's, it's beautifully designed in terms of the marquee art. I think when the wheel shakes, when you go off road is a genius move and it's very visceral and tactile for anybody. And I, I can't, I can't imagine anyone ever disliking Outrun. Has, have you ever met anybody no. that doesn't just automatically love Outrun? Because, like I say, it's there. It's freedom. It's Sega Blue Skies. It's you heading for the sun in an open-top Ferrari that doesn't really exist, but it should do. And one day I'll have one. And, um, and I just, yeah, I it staggers me now because Super Out Hang On was a great game. Super Hang On was a great game. But there is something magical about OutRun. Is it the theming? Is it the attitude? Is it the flavour? Is it driving through the waves erratically on the first stage if you go off the side of the road? Is it the colour? You know, it just... It wasn't your average driving game. It never has been your average driving game. And that's why I think Sega took their time to make the sequel, you know, however many years, 20 years to make the sequel. Like 17 years. I mean, they had they had Turbo Outrun and Outrun mm. is in the, yeah. The, mm. Turbo Outrun was an upgrade kit, wasn't it? And yeah. Then, obviously, Outrunners was, you know, System 32. Um, I felt like it got done dirty on the, on the 8-bit systems, like Outrun Europa, which was Ooh. developed by Probe. Is, oh yeah, is I, I'm not a fan of that one. Battle Outruns, interesting. I quite like that. I quite like it's, that. It's, it's it's not Outrun though. It's Chase HQ. Oh. Yeah, but it's Sega doing their bit to. <laughs> all right, well we can't get. Well, mind you, it does have Chase HQ on the Master System, doesn't it? Yeah. But obviously, Sega were in the habit of doing their own version of these game yeah. concepts on the 8-bit format, and Battle Outruns are all right. Yeah. And I'll tell you what, as well, the the Master Sister version of Outrun is super impressive. Yeah. Super impressive for the hardware. And it still freaks me out now. It 
it does feel like it's switching display modes depending on which section of road you're on. If you're going around a corner, yeah, the car moves in a different fashion than if you're going under an archway, which always weirded me out. So, yeah, I just, um, I think it is universally appealing. And I think if you do it right, it's universally portable. And each and every version has its own unique spin and unique flavor and and adds to the character. But like I say, the arcade version is the definitive. Um, It's one of the reasons why I got Saturn as well, finding out that there was a version that I could play that was about as close as you could get without shipping in a stand up into your living room was revelatory. And, um, and yeah, it's just a great game. It's just a great game. Turbo Outrun, I think, kind of misses the point because it gets rid of the roots, doesn't it? Yeah. It's checkpoint, but there's no splitting of the roots. And again, that's that's very kind of integral to the Outrun spirit, I feel. Right. Like having that freedom to go left or right, having the freedom to chase a time in a, on a particular route. Uh, just again, I, like I say, a stroke of genius. A stroke yeah. of genius, the whole thing. But... You know, you Suzuki man. What, what can you say? What, yeah. what I liked as well is the fact that I've been at the very start of this. You said, you know, when at the kind of end of primary school, you went on a kind of holiday or a, a trip, and there was an arcade. How? I mean, Dan, I don't. You must be the same. Maybe you are, but like, I can remember primary seven, like going to like Millport, and like you know, there was arcades there. Like, I remember we went on the, the school trip to France. Like, that's what I told you, I first played Final Fight. They had Final Fight Ghouls and Ghosts in 1942 in the, the foyer of the hotel we stayed in. You know, no, on so the ferry much. on the ferry over from, from Dover to Cali, they had the, the Turtles Arcade and they had the, the Simpsons Arcade as well. So it's like school trips, oh, and those those early kind of exposures to arcades. It's, 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 again, is that a British thing? Is that just, you go on a school trip and there's an arcade machine or two there? It just seems to be, that's why I was smiling whenever you said it was a school trip that you, you played it on, because it just kind of triggered that that same kind of memory for me as well. It, I, I guess, again, we're all of the same age where they were putting arcade machines in public places, you know? Yeah. <laughs> first place Street Fighter 2 in a swimming pool. I played, yeah. played in a Burger King and a Wimpy. <laughs> In a train station. We were talking about Chase HQ. There was one at the local leisure centre. That was the first place I played Chase HQ. But that was like that was many years later. Um do, do you know the weirdest the weirdest place I ever seen Street Fighter 2 in the arcades. Oh. Deep Deep Sea World in Oban, I think it is. Is that what Deep Sea World is? I, wow. I went it was me and a kind of was it a family day out. I must have been about eleven or twelve or something. And on the, the way out at the kind of cash desk area, but I clocked and it was Street Fighter, it was Street Fighter 2, was it Turbo or Champion Disc? Because I remember Guile had, was wearing blue and that, that kind of, I was like, why is Guile wearing blue? But all this, it was just surreal to think, why Street Fighter 2 at a marine kind of yeah. biology place? <laughs> it's like, I mean, they sold spinners, weren't they? I guess. Yeah. They sold six, look, I'm, Doing some, I'm trying to research something for Street Fighter 2 at the moment, but uh, yeah, they sold 50,000 cabinets. The the thing was grossing over half a billion dollars in every six months. <laughs> so so people wanted to get them in. But yeah, um, I'm on a bit of an outrun buzz at the moment. Obviously, at the time of recording, we've got uh, an outrun video going to play on Monday, and I, I, I 
I've fallen in love with it all over all over again. The whole series, just going back to our run two, and guys, I've got clips of the older games in there. I was playing all of them, and mm. uh, yeah, I, that's why I'm on eBay trying to buy <laughs> the run for the Game Gear. But I uh, I love what you say about every version is different. I've got it on the Switch, which is a great little version. Mm-hmm. Um, I love the Saturn version that I've got. I've got the same version as you, but I do want to get the Japanese version now because um, one of the tunes that I use in the upcoming video, the video that's upcoming will be out by the time this airs, but it's uh, playing on Monday, is uh, is a part of an arranged version of uh, Last Wave. Ah. Exclusive to the Sega Saturn. It goes on for like five minutes. It's absolutely beautiful. But it's just... Outrun it. Outrun just is. It's more than a game. It's it was. It's it's a it's a it's a feeling, isn't it? It's it's Ain't almost psychic. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's a vibe. <laughs> it's almost like Sega personified. You know. Yeah. Mm. I always say Sega is blue skies, um, and it's living the dream, isn't it? You know, the Ferrari mm. and the girlfriend with you <laughs> going across, going on across. Well, it's cross cross Europe. Depending on what version you play, it's cross Europe or cross America. Um, yeah, that was the uh, that was the original inspiration, wasn't it? He was uh, he basically said to Sega, right, "I want to make this game." So he bugged off to Europe <laughs> with a sports car, rental sports car. Don't know what it was, um, but yeah, yeah, just drove the roads, wasn't it? I think he wanted to do America first, but I can't remember. Oh, I knew I knew why it was, but I can't remember now. But there was a reason why he couldn't do America, so he did Europe, and then that's why the first version was Europe, and then the. Then you've got the international version, which has got the American themes tracks. I want to say that he or someone stepped in and they said, well, the environments are not different enough across America. You wouldn't get enough of a flavour for each. Yeah, that sounds familiar. Whereas with Europe, it was a little bit different. Um, Yeah, I just, wow. To even think about it now. And just coming back, um, it is a crying shame that we never received Outrunners on Saturn. I, I feel, yeah, um, you know, that game could have been done some justice at least. The Mega Drive version is obviously not very good, yeah. uh, and is well, it's <laughs> a completely different game almost. Um, well, it is. Um, it is strange that that was omitted, considering we got Power Drive, we obviously got Outrun, there's Chase HQ and SCI. There was definitely a market for that sort of thing. So one wonders why Sega didn't um, did do it. It's absolutely gorgeous as well. Like when you when you pull away and you've got that giant inflatable in the corner, the way that it scales, it's absolutely gorgeous. It's a heavy hitter in terms yeah. of sprite scaling. A heavy, it's probably the heaviest. Apart yeah. from that, was it a Capcom developed F one game or something like that? Yeah, uh, that was System Thirty Two as well, and that's uh, that's a stunning oh. looking, looking game. Mm. The name escapes me at the moment, but I know exactly the one you mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So brilliant. Outrun then. So all that's left is to talk about your favourite Sega console, which if you'd let us know. Oh, God. Right. Uh, This is the hardest one. This is the hardest one. Um, And it's simply because eyes bigger than my stomach. um, And it's it's tough to make a decision. Every Sega console that I have is special in its own way. The Master System is incredible. It's an S-Beta. It was built to be an S-Beta. It technically amazes me, even though I've only had it like six months. Um, the Mega Drive is the other half of the SNES for me. I know that's probably blasphemous in terms of Sega fans, but I feel like there's 
uh, a beautiful symbiosis between the two platforms. I and I don't think you can fully experience the 16-bit era if you don't play both. Sorry, James. I'm going to get you to play Super Metroid one of these days. Yeah, <laughs> um, and I'm I'm going to have to 100% agree with you. I absolutely love the SNES. <laughs> send your top, <laughs> send your top five consoles. <laughs> about, it? it is. You know what I mean? It's it's number five just behind the Dreamcast. Sometimes, depending on how I'm feeling, it's number four just ahead of the Dreamcast. <laughs> it's, it's it's absolutely incredible. But yeah, the two of them, and there's uh, I think when I, I wrote a, a piece about the SNES for my blog, when the, the blog was still going, and I, I generally feel the same way. The two are so different. You mm. have to have both to experience that 16-bit arrows. Well, and both um, of them are incredible. Where, where the one library falls short, and let's be honest, the Mega Drive library is far more diverse than the SNES yeah, library. Anybody who says otherwise is just talking crap. Um, but where the library potentially falls short on one side, the other side picks it up. Um, I do feel like Nintendo are more comfortable with long-form games, and obviously yeah. Sega are the master of the short-form game. Um, so again, there's a nice balance there. And it's just fun. It's just fun to see the two kind of go toe-to-toe with each other. You know, we Big talk gaming. about the various versions of Street Fighter, the SNES version versus the Mega Drive version, and then you have Turbo on the SNES, and then Super on both, and it builds up and it builds up, and yeah, just just great games, great times. Um, the Dreamcast obviously had a lot to prove in a short space of time, and it's a great console. Uh, it's got a lot going on. There's a lot of amazing first-party content, but again, there does feel it does feel like Sega are trying to distance themselves during this era from their own brand. Yep. Not just because they don't desperately want to put arcade games on there, they want to get involved more with long form games. Um but also, you know, there's a lot of bad press concerning Sega prior in terms of add-ons and so on and so forth. Um 32X I've got no frame of reference for. Uh, the Game Gear is probably the only console, portable console, to really take the Game Boy on in any serious form and is a great console as well. Uh, but you know what I'm going to say, it's the Saturn. Um, and it's simply because it means the most to me, but also it's the most Sega console they ever made. I mean, it is... It's, it's, a, it's a contradiction wrought in plastic, is what it is. It is, <laughs> it is by one half aiming to be a 2D machine, but is also a 3D machine. It's a machine that theoretically couldn't really do 3D, but we know that's bullshit. You come to the tail end of its life and it's, it's running rings around the PlayStation. I would still say that Burning Rangers is probably more visually impressive than any 3D platformer that playstation had going on that's my personal opinion i think the game looks fantastic um panzer dragoon saga i I don't i don't know the entirety of the playstation library but i'm still struggling to think of a fully 3d rpg on the other guy's console yeah fully fully voice fully 3d almost open world some sections Mm -hmm. yeah just super ambitious super ambitious the most ambitious game they ever made and then the print run in like thousands. <laughs> that doesn't make sense. But it's Sega, you know. It's 
it's the most hardcore console they ever made, but it's also a forward-thinking multimedia machine. You could get it to play VCDs. It could, you know, play games online if you had Netlink. It could become sat-nav if you wanted it to. They made a, a plug-in LCD for this thing. And they licensed it out to other hardware manufacturers as well. They took what 3DO was doing and made it successful. Hitachi, <laughs> JVC, Samsung, you know, I could go on. It's even the little things, like it's simultaneously Sega's best game box and also their worst game box. So the plastic boxes, great. The US boxes, shit. The paper boxes, oh. again, over time, difficult to work with, really. Um, <laughs> it's, you know, and more than anything else, I really think it could have been their finest moment. I really do. If they just, if they just stopped, if they just stopped for a second and actually coordinated, you know, we're obviously seeing a lot of the fallout between Sega of America and Sega of Japan through the recent file yeah. leak. You know, I, I don't think we're any under under any illusions that there wasn't a power struggle between the two. Uh, and I think both are at fault. Yeah. I think SOA had tied their colours so close to the Genesis mask that they really couldn't see what was happening in the future. Yeah. And this is why we get the 32X. So this is my tangent, by the way, James. This is my tangent. That's the cool. SVP. The SVP. The SVP should have been the 32X. Do you know why? Go on. Okay, so the SVP is obviously, there is a reason why the cartridge is shaped this way, and I had a little look at this. So obviously it's a cartridge sat within another cartridge because of yep. the moulding. But actually, it was supposed to be a plug-in device that you would then put games into. That's why there's a 32X game out there with the trace roots of SVP. It's um, It was marketed in the US as a... A Zaxxon game, and Dan, you're into the 32X, so you'll probably know what game I'm talking about. But it has more of a look of an SVP game than a 32X game because it's it's all flat-shaded polys. This could have been your low-cost Mega Drive upgrade before Saturn came along. And the reason why they didn't make this multi-game and multi-car, even though it was originally designed to be, is because of cost, which makes no sense. <laughs> then you get all the stuff around Saturn and Jupiter, which I think is the cartridge-based one, yep. the, the, mm. the lesser cousin of Saturn. Yep. And obviously the discussions and the meetings between SOJ and SOA about what they do with the Mega Drive. And it's, um, God, what was his name? Is Larry Miller, is it? The, the guy who's... Saying oh, no. it's Joe Miller. Joe Miller, Joe yep. Miller, that's the one. So... He's VP of R&D, and he turns around and he says, no, Mars needs to be more powerful. Mars needs to be all things to all men. We need to make the Mega Drive more power. Because the original intention was they were just going to do a bit of a soft relaunch with a bit more color, and you know it was going to be able to do more, but it wasn't going to be like a halfway house between the Mega Drive and the Saturn. It was never meant to be that. Sega of America, it feels like, pushed their hand with Sega of Japan. And 32X should not have happened. 
NFL. It is my contention that basically if they wanted to do an upgrade, they should have done a cheap upgrade, which was that. They never should have put 32X on the table. And that's what really kind of scuppered things and stunk things and didn't really give Saturn a chance to breathe in the West. But if you wipe all that away, Saturn could have been amazing. You have no 32X. You have no bad history with add-ons. People have forgotten about the Mega CD anyway. You go in at 350 rather than 400. That completely kills the 299 argument dead because that's 299 without a game. So right. 350, your choice of game. Um, delay the launch. Keep Sega Saturn Day. Do it in September when your games are ready, when there's a bit more maturity behind the system when you can bring more stuff over from Japan in terms of games. I just, it's a series of bad decisions that set Saturn up for a fall. But even in spite of all of that, look at the games that got out. Look at the games that are there. Look at the popularity in Japan and now contemporarily and even back then. I mean... There was a reason why I chose Saturn, and it's not because it wasn't a PlayStation. I chose a Saturn because of the games. Mm. It was just a happy coincidence that I wasn't handing my money to Sony. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing as well. The narrative always was, especially back then in like kind of high school and that, is that the Saturn's a bad machine. The Saturn's an underpowered machine. And what you said there is spot on. It was like, Sega didn't set it up for success. They literally put it out there fighting for survival without any any help at all. As you, mm. That's what you said. They set it up for failure. I mean, the SVP, now you've worded it like that, could have technically been to the Mega Drive what the 4 Meg RAM cut was to the Saturn. Absolutely. And not you know, too much sacrificed. Not too yeah. much harm done to themselves. Not had... You know, I mean, how much did the 32X cost to produce? Near enough $200, we would have thought. What were they selling it for? 250 It was 150 mm -hmm. they were selling it for. Um, but yeah, I mean, if, you, if you're using, if you're creating SVPs, whether it's whether it's a plug-and-play cart, like, you know, what would be the difference? 50 60 quid that would have exactly. retailed for? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, or, whether, or whether you just do every game is, a, is 70 quid or $100, which is what Virtual Racing that was. Mm. Um, which you know, I don't think that was that unpalatable, given that Street Fighter games were going for sixty quid at the time. Most most mm. Super Nintendo games were sixty pound. Street Fighter Two on the Mega Drive was sixty pound. Certainly, latter day games were, and um, well, unless you were getting really simple stuff. And it's just again, it's the the counter to the Super FX. Why does it need to be any more than that? Yeah, you know, it just it it makes no sense. I tell you the other thing that's really strange about the Saturn as well, and it. it it, it's the way it renders polygons, so quadrants, quadrat quadrilaterals, I should say. So it renders in quads. Um, this isn't an anomaly. This isn't the only system that does that. Uh, NVIDIA's first graphics cards, first two graphics cards, the second of which Sega actually part-funded, uses quads. So they weren't just going out on a limb and bucking the industry trends just you know for the sake of it nvidia were pushing the envelope in terms of 3d rendering they were actually working in partnership with sega for pc ports using their cards 
admittedly not very successfully because I think Sega lost interest. But quads were, you know, going to be a much more efficient way of rendering stuff than triangles. You were using half the amount and also the way NVIDIA were doing it and how they were certainly going to implement it in the MV2, which would potentially become the Dreamcast, was that it wasn't just the four points of the quad you were defining, but also five more points so you could actually do curves and cones and stuff like that. There's a whole sea of information behind the Saturn, which, you know, as I say, you keep digging, you keep delving, there's more of it there, and it's it's a fascinating platform. It's a fascinating platform in historical context alone. It's a great games machine. Um, yeah. What more can you say? The most yeah. Sega console of all time. Yeah, I'd agree with that. It de- oh, definitely, I think it definitely is. It's it's what Sega were, you know, brash, audacious, um, inventive. The, the library is full of that. And but Burning Range is just bringing that up just now. Um, I'd agree. I think it could have done with a bit more polish. Mm. I think it was rushed to come out in the West before you know the plug the plug was pulled. But you know, if that comes out. You know, that came out the same year as Metal Gear Solid. I think with a bit more polish, that mm. looks better than Metal Gear much more visually impressive because there's a, there's a lot of verticality to Burning Ranger's stages. Um, yeah, yeah. Lots, of, lots of color, lots of lion effects. And, you know, they go left, back, forward, but they go up and down mm. um, to, to huge degrees, much more than, you know, what else you'd seen on the market at the time. So, so yeah, it was incredibly visually impressive. But... Well, more it's, than that, I mean, MGS is fixed camera as well. Yeah. You know, its camera plays well to the PlayStation's limitations, whereas Burning Rangers is a dynamic camera. You can see everything around you. Swing the camera around. So, Even yeah. Even like Panzer Dragoon Saga as well. I mean, I still remember, like, the first time you fly through one of the early kind of canyons, and mm. the, ca- the camera goes to above the dragon just to let you actually see the kind of water in the valley below, mm. and you get the, the transparencies and the ripples in the water. It's just, just I, 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 st- I was, I was like, I, I was like, wow, <sighs> you know. And it, it's like, and it was kind of, it wasn't open, open world, but you could choose whenever you're going through those caverns. I'll go down that mine shaft. I'll go through that one. I'll open, you know, there's the, the kind of wee, um, kind of stone triangles that you burst open to get your your bonus items and things like that. You had choice. Mm. Of where, you, you, obviously, that was the, the whole thing coming off of the, the on-rail shooter, but you know, even the lighting effects, like if you go to a town at a certain time of day, like I just loved the, the kind of in the nighttime effects. Like you were visiting towns, it felt like it was nighttime. You know, mm. you had the, the, the moonlight shining down, the lights from the houses, some, some of the other wee huts they had, the, the lights on outside, they would light up beautifully. And then if you Maybe we're finding it a bit difficult to find your way around. Go back, put the, the reticle on the, the gate to leave. It will say, you know, wait till morning. Oh, that's fine, we'll just fast forward time. Mm-hmm. And then it would be like early in the morning and the sun was coming up and it was a whole different look. I just think that it was just so much going on with Panzer Dragoon Saga. And obviously one was spoken about as well, a later title, Last Bronx. Mm. I mean, that, that destroys even Tekken 3 as amazing as that was on, on, on PlayStation 1, can't hold a candle to last Bronx. 60 FPS, high resolution modes. Just stunning, I stunning. I've not played last Bronx. 
Oh, mate, after this, get it, get it, please. <laughs> I have been, I have oh. been eyeing it amongst other things, but no, um, <laughs> Fighters Mega Mix was always my first kind of exposure to Saturn fighting games, and um, I do like that because it's just weird. It's just <laughs> there's so much going on with that, but like everything else in Saturn world, it it's everything all at once. It's Smash Bros. before Smash, mm. you know. It's, well. You had, you had obviously you had your X Men versus Street Fighter and your King of Fighters, but they were very much quite serious games. Whereas Fighters Mega Mix was the let's throw the kitchen sink at it. Why not have the Daytona car fighting? Why not have characters from Sonic Fighters in there? Um, and that's that's just why. Yeah, I agree. That's why it is the quintessential Sega console. Brilliant, fantastic stuff, mate. Could, could not agree more. And after a plethora of my favourite Segas where Dreamcast and Shenmue has been mentioned. It's fantastic to come back with the series and we kick it off with some Saturn love. So you know <laughs> I think I think we've had um I think we've had three or four Dreamcasts, haven't we? We've had one Master System and now finally we've got a Saturn as well. <laughs> there we go. I'm sure um I'm sure someone will come through with the Mega Drive at some point. There's a lot lot to love about that console <laughs> as well. Yeah, but yeah. um like I say, the uh, Saturn got through, got me through a, a hard time as well. Um, you know, it is, uh, yeah, it's it's. There's a lot of good memories associated for me personally with that, and uh, yeah, it's going nowhere. That's for sure. <laughs> it's sticking oh. with me. It will only get better. It will only get more upgraded. I think. Yeah. I think it needs a bit of a tune up. So it's the one console I'll never be without. But I think. Well, we can end it there. That's it's been an absolute blast having you on. It's um, yeah, it's been I've absolutely loved it. So, can you let our viewers, our listeners, know where they can find you? Um, yeah, sure. So, I'm on uh, Twitter primarily. Um, I'm not a content creator. I just chat shit about games. So that's where I am at the moment until Elon's grand affair closes itself up. <laughs> uh, so that's at Videopolis. Um, that's V one D E O P O. L I S. Um, yeah. Cool. Thanks so Thanks much for, for coming on. That's been Thank an you. absolute pleasure. So listeners, hope you've enjoyed this this episode of the Sega Guys. You know where to catch you. You can find me at Super underscore D. You can find James at the Sega Holic. You can find the account at Sega Guys on Twitter or X, if you want to call it that now. But until what's, next what's, time. What's, what's with the adding Greenberg impression? Come on. no no xbox this is the sega guys we'll see you on the sega side you got get ready